All right, so we're in 2 Samuel. We're going to finish up chapter 3 and also do chapter 4 today, okay? Now, as you recall, if you've been here for a while, we're, we're, what we're doing is like the study exists at a whole bunch of levels. On the one hand, we're walking through second, first and Second Samuel, but really we're looking at the life of David. But the way that we're looking at the life of David is we really want to understand how it points to Jesus, how the whole thing is all meant to reveal and, and anticipate and train us to recognize the Messiah when he comes. And as if that's not enough, I also want to just help you think about how do you read <clears throat> biblical narrative? Like, what are the rules of, of um, And one of the things that I want to look at this morning about that, or, you know, just a, a lens to give you, is that the biblical narrators are not simply telling you what happened in some kind of a dispassionate ticker tape. Click, 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 right? It's not meant to just be some, like, non-agenda thing, but rather... They are arranging the material, meaning they're choosing a sequence. They are um, choosing what to include and what to exclude. Um, and they're organizing it all to make a point. So one story might be juxtaposed next to another story, not simply based on a straight chronology, but because it's going to help you grasp things. And so you're gonna, you'll find as you read through narrative, there's the, maybe the first level, the most obvious level, and the level at which we tend to read narrative is just the plot development. You know, this thing's happening and it's moving towards this climax. Um, and so we're kind of entering a really key stage because for weeks and weeks and weeks, we've been waiting for David to finally become king. And he's finally becoming king. We're finally right there. Really next week, but kind of now. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a process. But in, in addition to plot development, and you know this from stories that you've read, from fictional stories, is there's character development, right? There's certain things that we want to see we're like coming to understand the author is revealing new facets of a character or he's, putting, he's showing the character in a particular situation or he's letting us to see the way that she responds and under these circumstances, under these circumstances. And when you're reading a story, when you're reading narrative, even a true story, you're watching the plot line, but you're also watching that character development line. And so as we do this today, I think that would be useful um, to kind of see some of these organizing principles. Okay? So last, and we, start, we talked about this a little bit last week. What was last week? Do you remember? Can you, you can take a look. Were we not here last week? Oh, you weren't. I was. You weren't. Okay. So, I was. So, the first, we were in the first half of chapter three. So, what was, what was going down in chapter three last week? What was it? Too many wives. That's right. And we kind of looked at three vignettes, right? Did that work out well with you and Andy after class? Did that go okay? Yeah, that was great. All right. Good time. How many husbands? What's the max number of husbands again, Andy? One. It's gone down. It's gone down. Oh, it's gone down. That's bad news. All right. Yeah, John? One wife. Oh. I will disavow that statement right now, okay? One's perfect. Just enough for me. So, uh, yeah, so we saw the too many wives, but there were two other vignettes. Do you remember? What organized that whole cluster of things? What's that? Abner being accused by Ishbosheth that he had been with his father's with his father's concubine. Okay, which is similar. We got wives, we got concubines, and then there's that final, last little sad little vignette about the one more wife thing, right? Where David's got to go get Michael or Michelle or whatever her name is back, and the cluster is on purpose. Right? We're meant to see like, ah, oh, look at man, like there's all kinds of issues. The way that these men, so that's, we see that there's an organizing principle that we saw that really the seeds of David's ruin were laid in that whole thing. He's a great king. He seeks after God. He's a man after God's own heart. But he has problems, 
when he's engaging with the ladies, right? Things kind of go badly for him, okay? Similar, we're going to look at two vignettes, two independent kind of narrative arcs, two pericopes, if you will, all right, Hannah? And two, just kind of two, two pieces. And as we go through it, I just want you to notice, okay, what's the narrator's, what's the narrator's point? Okay, well, there's plot, but there's character development. What are we trying to see here? And I, don't, I think it'll be pretty obvious, okay? So you're going to ask, as we go through, what's happening in terms of plot and what is being revealed in terms of character development. Cool? All right. So look, look for those things, plot, character. Um, as we've been doing lately, remember DJ and the vowels. It's going to help you keep some of the characters straight. you got David and Joab on the side of Judah. you got Abner and Ishbosheth on the side of Israel. Um, Abner was on Israel's side, and he's been on Ishbosheth's side, but he's not anymore. Remember that? He's, all, he's got his nose bent out of shape because of this whole insult. And so um, he tells Ishbosheth, I'm going to sell you out. I'm going I'm, I'm to go from, David's, from your team to David's team. And the opening scene here is, uh, is going to be the continuation of that. All right, so we're in 3.17. So coming off all that mess, Abner, 3.17, 2 Samuel 3.17, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant David I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Isn't that amazing? When, when, once Abner changes alliances and he's no longer on Team Ishbosheth, suddenly he finds himself like, well, you know what God said was going to happen all along, right? It's a pretty stunning flip. When did God, when did God say that? Do you know what he's, what he's alluding to? Does that have any echo for you? I'm trying to follow these themes through the whole book. David's yeah, very good. It's, it's, it's very, very early. It's back all the way back to the anointing, which was like, what the heck was that? Like 15 years ago or 16? It was like a long time ago. It's 1 Samuel chapter 9. You can maybe stay where you're at in 2 Samuel 3, and I'll just read you 9, 16, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear the clear correspondence. Uh, 1 Samuel 9, 16. About this time tomorrow, I will send a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I've looked upon my people for their cry has reached me. Okay? And it's going to be a long, long time. By the way, can you think of another time in the Bible where people are suffering under the oppression of a people and God sends a deliverer, but it takes like super long time until it's finally go time? When does that happen? That's Moses, right? So that's... I think you're supposed to, when you read these, you're supposed to be like, oh, this reminds me of that. We're learning what are the patterns by which God redeems, right? He promises he's going to send the Messiah, someone who's going to rescue his people and deliver them. And it takes a long time for him to come the first time. And it, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that it's taking a long time for him to come again, right? So this theme of he promises is going to happen, and then you're like, I don't know if it's going to happen. And then it happens, right? So again, we're just learning these patterns by how God, how God does it, okay? So then it says in verse 19, back to 2 Samuel 3, Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. Why does he do that? Abner's on a new campaign. He's trading sides. Why does he go speak to the Benjamites? Saul. What is it again? Saul. Do you remember this? Saul is a Benjamite. And so this would be... 
this would be kind of like in American politics that uh, the home state, like candidate, presidential candidates, if you don't win your home state, you're awful, right? You're going you're gonna to win. Even, I mean, bless his heart, when, when Ronald Reagan uh, campaigned against Walter Mondale, do you remember how many states President Reagan won in his re-election campaign? 49. Mon what did Mondale win? What's it? His state. What was it like? What was it like? It was Minnesota. That's it. Minnesota. Okay. E even Walter Mondale wins his home state. Okay. He lost in Washington, D.C., but that doesn't really count. He lost everything else, but he won his home state. Benjamin is not just a people. It's a state. It's a tribe. It's a place. And so those guys, there's reason to think that they're going to be loyal to Saul. And so Abner's like, we got to head over to, you know, whatever we just said, Minnesota, and, and kind of shore up the base there. Make sense? So he goes, and here's what happens. He goes to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin wanted to do. So he wins. Like he, did, he gets them. He, he wins their hearts, and they're on Team David. And so in verse 20, when Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. And then Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king so that they may make a compact with you and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Okay? It's a lovely little story. Everything's going great. But his chief enemy has become his ally. He's winning him other allies and everything's great. But what's about to happen? Look at the verse. What's, what's, gonna, what's, what's gonna about to take place? Joab's coming back. Okay, Suzanne, how is Joab going to feel about David having a private lunch with Abner? He's not happy. Why? He's got a whole bunch of reasons. What are the reasons that Joab, remember, he's part of the DJ team. He's already on, he's been on Team David forever. He's not some Johnny-come-lately. How does Joab feel about Abner? He thinks he's a spy. He thinks he's a spy. This is true. That is absolutely true, and that's what's going to be articulated here. But what's beneath the surface here? Yeah, man, this is the guy that, like, stabbed his brother, Abner, because he killed his brother. So, of course, he's going to, you know this, right? You view people with mistrust, even if they're completely trustworthy, because they wronged you. And now it's like, he, all, he's gonna, Joab's going to see this whole thing through the lens of the murder of his brother. So there's that. His statement is going to be, uh, he, I think he's a spy. You let him in, he's, he's, walk, he's taking notes. He brought 20 guys, and every one of them was, like, checking out the weakness in the fortress, Right? So that's not good. And then he's got one more very powerful motive. What else would be going on in Joab's mind about Abner? Rival? Yes. Unpack that. Well, Abner could be considered the next Joab for David. Absolutely. Yeah. So for Joab, this is like a, this is like a job security issue. Like, are you going to now, like, what is Abner's job? Like a military commander, right? What's Joab's job? He's a military. We don't need one of those. We have one of those. We have one of me. Last thing we need is this, right? And so it is absolutely a rival. By the way, just in the interest of kind of connecting it to last week, I wonder if wife number two or three or four or five or six or seven felt like a rival to wife number one. Right? So there's this thing that's going on. It's like you're bringing, what? It's like your, like your second born kid. How did your second born kid, or I'm sorry, how did your first born kid feel when your second born kid showed up? 
Like, who brought the jerk? Like, why are you spending all your time with this little cute? Like, this is a very deep thing in, our, in the human heart. So we got, we got Abner. And, I mean, we got Joab. And he's still mad about his brother getting speared to death. He doesn't trust this guy because he's going to, like, he could be spying on us. And if he's wrong about Abner having bad motives and that Abner is going to really be a great military commander, what's he going to do? Well, that's bad. It's bad, 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 bad. He hates it all. And so, what's he going to do? He's going to kill him. Because what else would you do? You know, just kill him. Okay, so, take a look. Abner sends, David sends Abner away, and in verse 22, just then, David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. So they're off bringing in money to the kingdom, right? But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him away. He'd gone in peace. So when Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that friggin' Abner had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. And so Joab went to the king and he said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why'd you let him go? Now he's gone. You know Abner. He came to deceive you and to observe all your movements and to find out everything that you are doing, Okay. He is profoundly mistrustful. He thinks he's a spy, and maybe he does. Maybe he really thinks that. But he's got plenty of motive to hate him, whether he thinks it or not, right? Super threatened. And so, verse 26, Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sarah. David didn't know of it. Underline that. It's going to be very important to David that you can make note of that. So now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside to the gateway as though to speak with him privately. And there... To avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Okay. Now, now is where the, the character development really kicks up. What is David going to do? Mourn. What did you say? He's going to mourn. Okay, now, why, now either you read that or you have a reason to think that. Why is, why, how, let's, let's unpack what he does and then we'll talk about why. What, what is David's general response? Do you, or what, what do you think it's going to be? He did the same thing with Saul. Yes. Yes. Okay, Ann gets this exactly right. He does the same thing that he did with Saul. Do you remember? So Saul is his enemy. He's been trying to kill him over and over and over again. And then when Saul finally dies, and you think, you know, it's kind of like there's a, you'll you'll see this in our political world. When somebody dies, people tweet, you know, they're either going to tweet, oh, we miss them so much. But at home, they're like, yes, they're finally gone, right? That thing. David, for all appearances... Right? As far as we can tell, he is genuinely grieving. This was the Lord's anointed, and he grieves and he weeps over the death of Saul. And now he's going to grieve. Again, as this character is being developed and we're watching it happen, we see the way it plays out, and David is going to be above board in all things. He is not gleeful at the death of his enemy. Right? Marty? He might have also considered that, oh no, here's the coalition that Abner's that's right so now he's not going to talk about that but there is to hit in his mind like Joab feels like he just killed an enemy Jesus or Jesus David feels like he just lost an ally that Abner was doing good work for us and now that whole thing has gone away for sure Kelly sure Yes. His morning kind of a. I mean, could it have been 
Yeah. So I don't know. You're absolutely right. There's, there's a lot of things. I don't know that it's fake, but it is absolutely the case that, he, that this is to his, dis, that not only is Abner's death to his disadvantage, but it is also to his disadvantage to be perceived as being complicit in this plot. And we're going to see that's going to be a, ma- his, he's going to, it's going to come very much to the surface. His motive here is to let the whole world know that he is hands clean of this. And we're going to see that really get unpacked. But even if he's doing the morning as a, a political show, like posturing, he does go on to curse Joab, his own guy, which he probably didn't have to do that. But that, that whole, like, let you never have a piece and let there always be a sore leprosy or whatever. Yeah, so, we'll, so what we're going to see, and I think as, as, we, as we continue to go through, I think, I think we can make a pretty persuasive case that David is sincere. He, it's not, he is shrewd, to be sure. He is a shrewd man. He, he's recognizing the political moment. But beneath that shrewdness, there's a sincerity that he, this is not what he wanted. This is a, this is a regrettable act, I, I think for sure. And we'll see more evidence of that in a minute. Okay, a bunch of you. Jennifer? I'm just going to support Kelly's thing. But I always, I'm, I, he did curse Joab. But I felt he sort of threw Joab under the bus, rightly so. But they were like, hey, my hands are clean. And, um, but then he didn't remove Joab from his position, did he? He doesn't. Okay, we're going to see. So you guys are all getting ahead of stuff. But I love the fact that your gears are turning. We're going to see how it all comes together. And just to, we're going to watch it all play out. There's a lot more data we haven't, we haven't grabbed yet. Yeah, Suzanne. David spent a lot of time in Saul's household, so he probably knew that. Oh, for sure. Prior to all the running around through Israel being chased by Saul's soldiers. So, like, he, he probably knew Abner better than we're getting a feel for here. He may have genuinely been sad that he was gone. Yeah. I think he is. And I, and, and I really think he is. And as strange as it seems, I think he was sad that, that Saul died. Like, he really, I mean, he, 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 he's a strange man, right? David is a strange man. But he, I think he genuinely grieves over the death of Saul. He genuinely grieves over the death of Abner. And yes, all these other things are true. And he's got motives and there's a shrewdness to it. But I don't think he's being false in any of it. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. David always respected his anointing. Yes. I mean, David was anointed prior to this. Uh, the anointing was removed for Saul. Yes. And given to David, that David respected God's anointing the whole time. He really does. David is legitimately kind of, if you don't respect the man, at least respect the office, that kind of an idea. David is hardcore about that. It's why he will not lay a hand on Saul. When he becomes king himself, right? Whole bunch. Laura Beth? I don't know if I'm reading this in myself, but I, I feel like he's grieving. Israel is almost healed here. They're almost united, and there's yes. this conflict comes up again, and I think he's grieving as much as the death of Abner. It's this, oh, we were almost there. Can I preserve and, and continue this healing? I think, yeah. He loves Israel, and he wants Israel to be. It's a very good insight. It's, it, your, your comment reminds me of you know, Abraham Lincoln as, he's, as the Civil War is won. He really genuinely wants to bind up the nation's wounds, right? He wants to reach across the aisle, so to speak, or the border, if you will. And when he gets killed, that all just goes, it gets all just destroyed. But he wants, like, no, no, let's come back together. Let's, let's unite the thing. And, and this is, this is going to deepen a preexisting fracture, for sure. Catherine? Tim, isn't it just like Jesus when he wept over Jerusalem? Amen. Oh, if only 
hath left me shelter. And don't we grieve, like a certain relative of mine, at that we wish that they had listened and, and repented, even though we might have hated them or had a lot of Yes. Yep. But that's David. I just see Jesus. That's a great point, Catherine. Yes. So, and all these things, we're, we're, we're sifting David. He's going to get a bunch of stuff wrong from this point on, but he gets a lot of stuff right. And one of the things you see is he has this love of, even though he is a, he, he's going to kill a lot of people, right? But he, he's very selective about the people that he kills. I mean, it's, it's really interesting to watch the way he plays out. He wants there to be this union, and he's grieved, but the whole thing is falling apart, for sure. Jump in. One more, and then we'll keep moving. Same as Catherine. It's just, he's foreshadowing Jesus. Yeah. Strange. He's that's right. That's right. Right? So it's, it's unique among men, and, and uh, he is super unhappy. So let's watch it actually play. We guys, you guys already know the story, but we'll just see it happen. Verse 28. So later when David hears about this, this being Joab's murder of Abner, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. May Joab's house... This is where it gets a little weird. Never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. Okay. Have you ever said that about somebody in your entire life? May you never be without a running sore. Like, what? Okay. What is that? Why this weird list of, like, horrible things that could happen to you? What on earth is David doing there? They're unclean. Okay, so there's this sense of untouchability, like, oh, your leprosy, you can't have you. Yes. What is he? It's, it's an echo of something. Bob? So an irony that they killed him in Hebron, which is a city of refuge. So David's got to contend with oh, that. I had not thought about that. Because it being one of the cities of refuge, mentioned yeah. in John. Wait, we talked about this a few weeks ago. What was, I can't even remember that. What was the other city of refuge we looked at? Them that were given, and they were, were people were, who were guilty of manslaughter killing could go. And then he kills them actually in a city of refuge. So. Which is a super, super no no. I had not, we had talked about that a few, you know, I don't know, a month or two ago, but I didn't think about that in this instance. So that's a really good point. Um, anything else? What's going on with this festering sores thing? There's an Old Testament echo here that David is not quite quoting. But he's functioning in the spirit of something else. You know what it is? If you go to the very end of Deuteronomy, we won't, I don't think we'll do it right now for the sake of time. But if you go to Deuteronomy like 28, 29, 30, it's this list. You should just read it. It's exceptional. There's this long list of, hey, if you obey, man, you're going to have this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, all this giant long list of blessings. But if you disobey, strap in. And it's stuff like, you know, an itch that never stops itching and like, you know, wounds that never heal. And I mean, it just goes on and on. You're going to plant all this food and then somebody else is going to eat it. And it just goes on and on and on. And this is kind of this eclectic, weird list of like, all right, easy. You know, like, I get it. It's awful. That's what he's doing, right? Some of these lines, some of his lines, you could draw them out of, out of Deuteronomy 28. It's not exactly a quote. But it's this creative reimagining of Deuteronomy 28. And essentially what he's saying is, you are under the curse of God. And? You already just said He's put in God's hands to do the punishment. He's not. Yes, that's right. 
That's right, he doesn't. Although, he's going to later, okay? But we'll get to there in a second, okay? So it, so it is this sense of like, you blew it huge, and we're, we're hands clean. We didn't do it, all right? He continues, verse 30. Joab, the narrator reminds us, in case we got lost in the story, Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he killed their brother Asahel in the battle of Gibeon. And so David says to Joab and to all the people with him, tear, this is interesting, to like, it's like telling your, your kid to go next door and apologize to the neighbor, right? David tells Joab, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. So Joab has to go to the funeral of the guy that he killed, tear his garments and mourn the death of the one that he killed and hates and is still grumpy about, okay? And King David himself walked behind the bier. And they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb, and all the people wept also. And the king sang this lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as the lawless die? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. You fell as one falls before wicked men. And all the people wept over him again. Okay, now we kind of hit this already, but again, why? this is... Does this not strike you as somewhat of an extreme response? I mean, it is a big, big, I mean, he's making a huge scene. We're literally having a, why is David so demonstrative about this? It could have been, Joab killed Abner, and David was glad. It could have been, Joab killed Abner, and David wasn't happy. Instead, it's like, Joab killed Abner, and then this giant circus ensues. Why is it such a big, you should run, you should wonder. Whenever you see things that seem to get a disproportionate amount of attention, you should wonder, this seems more important than I realized. What's going on? Chris. I'm probably wrong, but to me it feels like a political foundation. Political foundation, certainly for his kingdom, absolutely. And in fact, uh, we're going to see in a little bit a statement that's going to you know, kind of be, be to the same effect of that. Yes. Kat? Is he punishing Joab? Well, he's definitely punishing Joab, sure. I mean, having him parade around is humiliating. Calling down curses of God on him is humiliating. And then again, there's going to be a P.S. to the story later on. He is. But why? Why is this so important? Yeah, this, this is murder. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And maybe he's saying, wait a minute. I understand killing your enemy when you have to. Yeah. But you just, just, just for political reasons, you're going to murder somebody. It's like, Safe. wait a minute. That's right. I don't know. See, I didn't read ahead. <clears throat> so I don't know what he did to Abner after this. Like, really, he could have really said, Yeah. Does he do that? Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. You want to jump in? I would think also, I mean, he knew David had said he would be protected. So he's being, he's defying David. Oh, absolutely. This is, this is, this is a, yeah, it's a clear act of defiance. He is, he is, David is the king. As, as this, we'll see that in a second. As the king, David has the authority to do these things. Joab does not. It is a major, he's playing very much outside of, his, outside of the rules. Zach? Adam and Samuel were maybe wrong, but it's one of the first times in First and Second Samuel. This is not one of the first times in First and Second Samuel where subordinates of David suggested doing something like this. Well. One of the first times where they actually acted. Yeah. Well, so... Yes. So, I mean, he's got a bunch of salty dudes that are running around with him in the, you know, in the desert, for sure. Like, this is the kind of thing that his, his companions are going to do. But when they did it to Saul, and the, when the guy thinks that he's giving David good, hey, good news, I killed Saul, you know. Um, David's like, mm, bad idea, and he kills him, right? So it's, it's, it echoes that, that this whole thing, David is absolutely determined 
that he will be hands clean. He will not let his, his what do we call it, his, uh, uh, what do we call it, presidential house, um, his administration, there's another word for it, be sullied by, um, by this scandal. He is very concerned that everybody knows that he is hands clean. His, his authority as the king, his right standing before the Lord, he's like, no, let nobody see it. So watch what he does. Oh, no, first thing I want you to, before you keep going, did you notice the language change here in this, in this passage? Right here, something is happening. The narrator has introduced a new term over and over and over again. Did you, did you catch it, Fetz? I don't know, but uh, uh, the word king is now referred to. That's it. That's exactly right. He's a king, he's a king, he's a king. So just take a look. We'll just skim through. Uh, there's a bunch of them. I don't have them all highlighted, but like, you go to 324. So Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Um, I don't know. There's a bunch. I thought I highlighted them. Verse 20, or verse 31, King David himself walked behind the thing. Verse 32, and the king wept aloud. Verse 33, the king sang this lament. Um, there's a whole bunch of them. Verse 36, everything the king did pleased the people. All day the people, all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder. Then the king said to his men, in verse 39, though I'm anointed king. It's king, 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 king. So it's kind of like we've been waiting and waiting and he's not been the king this whole time. And in fact, it's, it's kind of funny. Truthfully, he still isn't. That's chapter four. But it got, it's like the narrator can't wait anymore, right? And he's like, the king, the king, the king, the king, the king. Finally, we're meant to see that he is the king. And what I think is he becomes king is king-elect, truthfully, we're seeing that he functions with total integrity and he will not let this, his kingdom be rocked by scandal, at least not yet, all right? So take a look what happens now. 35, let's see, they all came and urged David to eat some, to taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. And check it out, verse 36, and this is kind of the point of it. And all the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything that the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder, because it is a murder, Catherine, of Abner, son of Ner. And then the king said to his men, do you not realize that a prince and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am anointed, the anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zariah, that's sons of Zariah is... Uh, is Joab and his brother Abishai, are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. And once again, it's the Lord. He's like, I'm not going to do it, but we're going to trust the Lord to do it. Okay? Judy? I, I think political means yes, but David has spent his entire 15 years avoiding um, taking by force. Yes. That's right. So, or whatever, um, and I think this was another, again, war is one thing, it's a, it's a fair fight, God chooses who's going to win in his eyes, but, but the murder of somebody is, again, by taking that by force, he wouldn't take Saul, he wouldn't kill this person. That's right. He's not going to try and manipulate God. That's right. At this point in his spiritual life, later perhaps, but I think he really wants it to be clean and God's doing, not... A hundred percent. So what Judy is saying is that this action, while it's big and demonstrative, it's a big scene, it's, com it's perfectly consistent with David's behavior the whole time. It's not only consistent with the way that he engaged with Israel, with not Israel, with um, uh, uh, 
uh, Saul, right, in, in Saul's death. But the whole time, the whole time, he is, he is when God, if God has anointed him king, then God's just going to have to install him as king. He's not going to force the issue. He will not take his throne by, by blood. How many, I would really wonder, what percentage of people became king in the history of the world through bloodshed? Like, it has got to be a very high number, right? I mean, incredibly high, but not this guy. And he's like, if somebody steps in, he's like, dang it, I didn't do that. He's not going to ever do that, right? And that's very, so it's very important to David that the Lord places him on that throne, and he won't do it by his own, you know, manipulations. Dan? I think, too, one of the, the cool things that's going on here is that Abner is kingmaker from a I mean, certainly God has used him in this role, but it's through Abner that we see this transition of Israel from, you know, kind of thinking, no, we're Saul's, we're, you know, we got to go with Saul's descendants, to flipping over to David. And, you know, from a human perspective, he's the guy that did it. And so David's kind of mourning, you know, a great man, a prince, yes. died. Well, this is a guy that really is going to end up putting him on the throne of Israel. That's exactly right. And now he's dead, and it's not, it's not the way it should have been. Absolutely. Okay? So far, so good? Have we beat that to death? <laughs> um, David's final word on this is going to be the very end of his life. 1 Kings chapter 2. The very end. David is dying, and things are still weird with him and women because, like, he warms his bed with, like, 16-year-olds, which is weird. Um, but he says this in 2.5. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me. What he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies. Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. That's basically according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. That's basically saying execute him. At the end of his life, David's like, and enough. And he, and he cuts him off, which is interesting that he does. He doesn't, well, maybe we'll see that if we get to David's life later. But the point, I think we've said it a thousand times, David is a man of peace. He's a man of war for sure, but he is not going to go murdering people. And he won't let his kingdom be stained by that. And it's really important that the narrator, to the narrator that you get that. Okay? So much so that we're going to do it all again. Chapter 4, let's go. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now, Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. Okay, this is a little bit confusing because you're going to get these names. And maybe not for you, but I think I've told you I skip all proper nouns when I read. And it is a horrible habit. Okay, these two guys, Banna and Rechab, I don't know how you say their names. They're the sons of Rhyme, blah, 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 whoever they are. They are not descendants of Saul. They are like his, they are associates of Ishbosheth. They're thugs, okay? And so, these rough men, these thuggy dudes, they are running around and they're associated with this guy. Um, skip verse 4. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Verse 5. Now, when these two guys, Rechab and Banna, the sons of Reman and the so-and-so, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, they arrived there in the heat of the day while Ishbosheth was taking his noonday rest. Time out. Wouldn't it be lovely if you had a noonday rest? <laughs> like, who gets a noonday rest? What's that about? So they went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Isn't that where, same thing, right? This is like the murder spot, apparently. They stabbed him, in, I just noticed that now. They stabbed him in the stomach, I lost my place. Um, and then Rechab and his brother Banna slipped away. 
They'd gone into the house while he was lying on the bed. We get a little more detail. They went into the house while he's lying on the bed in his bedroom, and after they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Well, that's nice. Taking it with them, they traveled all night by way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and against his offspring. And you have to wonder if these guys have ever read a newspaper, right? <laughs> like, what do they think is going to happen? What do they think? <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. It's like, my goodness, have you guys ever paid attention? It's the exact same story once again. You just feel sad for these guys. Like, it's just not going to go as they think. So verse 9, very much true to form. And again, the narrator is doing, these are back to back. He tells this story, and then he tells this story in case you weren't paying attention in chapter 3. Early as the Lord lives. I'm sure he's like, he must be incredulous. Like, how could you not, as surely as the Lord lives who has delivered me out of all trouble, when a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. At which point, perhaps their confidence begins to shake. <laughs> How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Okay, get it now? It's like, has it settled in? Never bring David the dead body of his enemy. Just never do it. Chris? I feel like that comment with the city of refuge, Hebron, it's kind of reminiscent of the beginning of David's journey with Goliath, that's the absolute God. Mm. This is stupid to go and fight you in front of all these armies, and yet I'm going to in the same way of the cities of refuge are for anyone to go until they give are given a fair trial. Yeah. We're not really given a lot of, if any, instruction yeah. for what to do if someone disobeys this. So I'm just going to fear God in this case and say, I need to mourn, I need to fast, I need yes. there to be a sim some sort of symbol and dedication. Yes. To him, and then in the same way, hanging those bodies outside of Hebron. I'm like, don't forget, guys, this is the yeah. city. That's right. You're right. And, and David's response here, it's, David's a complex character because on the one hand, he is like, there will be no unjust death in my kingdom. Kill that guy and cut off his hands, right? And, but he, the, he is the king. He is not functioning in a separation of powers, American jurisprudence. He is the undisputed king. And he, it is just for him to execute judgment, in particular against those that have been unjust in the murder of others, thinking that David would appreciate it. And he just really, really doesn't. Fetz? Any significance to Ish-Washeth's head being buried in Abner's tomb? If there is, I don't know what it is. Um, maybe it's the freshest, most accessible tomb. Maybe it's just the, uh, the association of these two, these, you know, these honored men. This is the king, and this is... You know, this great prince. Uh, there may be more than that, but if so, I'm, I'm not sure beyond that kind of apparent stuff. Bob, you got any your gears turning on that? 
Now, uh, I just think it's interesting David refers to Ishbosheth not as the Lord's anointed at this point. He just refers to him as an innocent. Yeah, because he wasn't probably the Lord's anointed. I mean, he is the heir, he is the son of Saul, but David doesn't give him that distinction. But he's, nevertheless, he is the king and, and was murdered in his bed. I think it shows that, that they both were innocent men. Yes, that's right. And you didn't get it the first time. Here it is, putting them together. Yes, yes. So we're, again, we're just learning to see the arrangement of material, right, that it's all here. Michael? Uh, yeah, I was just going to make a comment earlier about Joab having to go to the funeral and David making this big presentation. And my thought then was that he had to, he was trying to do this to prevent other people from doing the same thing. Maybe that was why he was making such a big deal out of it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. There's, there's a... I didn't read ahead, so obviously it didn't work. Yeah. Well, and it, it's stunning. I mean, you would really you think, have, have you not been paying attention? The Saul thing was a big deal. This one just happened last week. Like, how are you... I mean, maybe we're... They didn't have the internet, so maybe, you know, they don't have as much access to what's going on, but it doesn't seem like David was hiding this, you know, under a bushel at all. Lily? I was just curious about the coming off of the hands and the feet. Like, is that David? Like, I will do, I will cut off the hands of the feet of the wicked. Like, they will know, like. Yeah, but you're right. Yes, this has to, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't trace that down. But you're right, it has to be meaningful. Because it seems like a very particular act. So I don't know. Does anybody know? Anybody have a footnote that says hands and feet represent something or something? You know, like, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. <laughs> well, this is actually not a bad thought. <laughs> Truly. And if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. Okay, that the there actually might be something in that. I mean, I know you said somewhat tongue in cheek, but that's actually a pretty good thing. I will look into that. I don't. I I should have. I didn't. Uh, I didn't consider where that goes. But it's got to be meaningful. Everything's meaningful, right? Okay, so here we are. Two lines we're trying to trace. We're trying to follow the plot, and we're trying to follow the character development. Plot first. What does the narrator want you to capture about the story arc? What's What's happening? Big picture storyline. Character in a second. Yeah, Don? David is king. He's going to act like the king. That's right. Even though he hasn't been officially installed. That's exactly right. That's exactly spot on. David is king, but not really. But he's about to be. But he's already functioning in that role. Okay? The, like the enthronement, the, the inauguration is going to be in two weeks. Because we're not going to be in here next week. Okay? But the inauguration is coming. But he's already functioning in that space. That's the plot story. Kelly Sue? Yeah, so he, that's true. He has been king of Judah, but now he's, he's, he's getting the whole thing. And Judah's kind of a smaller part of the whole story. And God's promised him was king over the whole thing. So that's right. So he's been king, but now he's, his kingdom is growing. And he'll have no rivals very soon. right? Not, at least not within the borders of the nation. So that's the plot we're seeing, okay, here it is. Or explain it. How did David become king? Well, uh, Ishbosheth got in trouble with Abner, and Abner sold him out, and all of Israel agreed, and then Benjamites really agreed, and then Joab killed Abner, and then David got the kingdom. That's the story, okay? But more than that, what's the character development? David has become king, and what's the takeaway? He's setting up, he's setting, showing what his kingdom is. That's it. He's showing what his kingdom is going to be like. He's not just king. He's a righteous king. He's not just in charge, but he's submitted to the Lord. 
right? And that's what we want to give. Like, man, David, for you, there's, there's something, it's, it's fine to be like humble and gracious and self-effacing when you're out of power. But what about when you're in power? Plenty of promises are made during the campaign. Blah, blah, blah. But now that he has the scepter, what's he like? Holy cow, he's the same, right? He is submitted to the Lord. This was not just a ruse to get there, right? And so it is for as we close right now with Jesus. He is gentle and humble and gracious and good all the way to the cross and forever thereafter, right? Well, I've quoted this 500 times, but it's still worth saying, right? John in Revelation is told, behold the lamb, um, behold the lion of Judah, the king. And he looks, and what does he see? He sees a lamb as though slain, right? Jesus could be flexing in his strength and power, but even still, he is meek and humble. Even amidst the throne of his exaltation, he is a lamb still. David has come to power, and he is still good. And that is a rare thing indeed. All right, good enough. Next week, join us here, but it won't be David. We'll be talking about safe families. The week after that, we'll continue David's life.